Welcome to the 17th episode of Quarantine Market Podcast, where some academics get together in our current historical moment and discuss particular keywords. The keyword for today is nation. And as guest, we have Maria Brock. So, Alan, would you like to introduce Maria for the audience? Indeed, I would. Maria Brock works at the School of Journalism, Media and Culture at Cardiff University. Her research tends to address issues of transitional and post-transitional societies, especially in the former Eastern Bloc. And she focuses on issues of representation, nationhood, memory and gender. So hello, Maria. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Alan. Hi, you. Lovely to meet you again. <laughs> Indeed. We're all, uh, we all previously worked uh, for different institutions at uh, Stockholm. Today, Maria, the keyword that we've identified is nation. Where do you think would be a good place to start to define the concept of the nation? I think when we previously talked about this, um, you mentioned that there seems to be a time, especially around COVID-19, when the nation is becoming more salient again. And while this may not be the most theoretical approach, it sort of hit me uh, around last Friday's VE Day celebrations around here when I was walking on my daily scheduled walk. And I walked around houses and front gardens that were inundated and decorated with um, British and English flags. Everyone was sort of waving them happily at people walking by. Uh, and it just reminded me of the kind of uh, passionate attachment that we talk about in psych psychosocial studies, which are sort of latent, so we may not always be aware of our attachments to the nation, to national bodies, but then they get activated in certain circumstances. And sometimes, somehow around this idea of we're in a national crisis, but we're also in this together, people felt compelled to be uh, waving their little flags. I don't know if this serves as a definition, uh, but this being attached passionately, even when that passion isn't something that we associate with more sort of quotidian ideas of passion and love and lust and desire, especially Russia under Putin's most recent terms. And there, that sort of love for the nation really came to the fore around the crisis with Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea. So again, there are, there's a moment of crisis, whether it's constructed, created or real, and then suddenly people feel compelled to kind of profess their love for a nation, a nation that they may not even have felt as very present in their lives before that. Raymond Williams, in his essay on the nation, notices how the term overlaps between the nation state and mm -hmm. racial groups. This can lead to all sorts of incoherencies in political organizing. To what extent do you think that that remains a critical issue in how we understand and approach the question of the nation? I certainly think it is a tension. And my mind keeps going back to Russia, perhaps because that's a country that I've lived in and that I've been writing about for about, gosh, 10 years now. In, in the sort of post-Soviet landscape, Russia still is technically and constitutionally, for example, defined as, a, of course, a multi-ethnic state. It has 172, if I'm not mistaken, different uh, ethnicities. So constitutionally, it is defined as a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multinational state. And in moments of threat 
to the borders, again, constructed or real, like in the 2013-14 crisis with Ukraine. Russianness or being Russian means all of us who live within the borders of Russia uh, who must come together to defend the nation. However, when we're talking about more internal issues, so uh, be it issues of employment, economic issues more generally, but also things like national health, it's suddenly uh, these ethnicities or racial differences are reactivated and become salient. So suddenly you see uh, that Russianness has actually implicitly always meant whiteness, Slavicness, and uh, heterosexuality. And I would say here, or if we look at the UK or at the US, again, of course, technically, these are liberal nation states, multi-ethnic, multi-racial, and so on. But it's certain individuals that are, that are dying and certain lives that are more grievable than others. And again, the lives that are more grievable in, in, in this COVID-19 crisis often seem to be white subjects, whereas BAME or people of color, their deaths seem to be less grievable, less visible. I'm casting my mind back to the 1990s when authors mm-hmm. like Stuart Hall in particular would emphasize mm-hmm the possibility of multiculturalism. But that, as a movement, seems to have died out a little bit. Do you think it's possible to invoke the nation today without, in terms of invoking or implying something to do with a rightful national group? Is there always going to be, in other words, an element of dog whistling attached to discussions of the nation? I would like to engage in utopian thinking about the nation so that the nation can be a territory of mutual support, of building bases of care, care for citizens, irrespective of gender, race, sexuality. But then when I cast my mind over historical examples, I have struggled to see that really manifested, that there is a kind of a national subject that isn't also a a racialized or gendered subject. So I'd like to think... Um, it's possible, but I haven't seen it so far. And maybe this is the time when we need to be engaging in this kind of uh, utopian thinking. But at the same time, um, that all, we're, we're all in this together still seems to mean, even right now, but some of you are more in it than others. Now, a, a psychosocial question for you. Historically, we see during wartime people referring to their nation as the fatherland or the motherland. Why is mm-hmm. it that we seem to have this kind of Oedipal relationship with the state? A very Freudian answer would be that all identifications follow and identification with the nation here as, as, as the example, follow that initial trajectory of, of the kind of Oedipal triangle. So as subjects, we continue to identify throughout our lives, not just with, our, with the father figure and the, and, and the mother figure, other individuals, other objects, objects that can be ideas, but it all goes back to these initial powerful figures in our lives. The function that they fulfill, sort of authoritarian, strict, or whatever we see, we, we, we think of the father figure, and I don't mean necessarily a male subject here, and, and the kind of intense, all-consuming love and wanting to possess that we have of the mother, I think these, these kind of tendencies 
keep getting reenacted in identifications uh, with the nation, but they also correspond to two aspects of what we make the nation mean in a way. So fatherland, it makes me think of the kind of leader figure aspect of the nation and someone that we would compete over to, to please, and then the motherland as, as that sort of nurturing aspect, but also that consuming aspect, something that absorbs us. Now, you, you're using two uh, theoretical terms, and I'd be interested to hear how you distinguish between them. Uh, they are attachment and identification. So identification is really the, the, the Freudian notion. I had to veer away from ideas of the nation and go back to the very mechanisms of how we become a subject and how we become a subject, at least in Freud's view and also later redevelopment like Lacan's. It really is a kind of taking in. So before the attachment I'm using in a, in, a, in a colloquial sense, but also in a sort of Butlerian sense, we use passionate attachments. But before we can relate or attach to anything, we need to identify with it. Identifying really means taking parts of it and in installing them in, in our psyche. You're using this term passionate attachment. Why this, what that means and also why it gets activated Passionate attachment, attachments is a notion that I really enjoy passionately, I was going to say. Um, and I, I first encountered it when I was looking at Butler's writing around gender and how we identify with, with a specific gender, but also the melancholic aspect of that. But actually, an even more pithy formulation was created by Mladen Dollar, so more of a a Lacanian scholar who said that a passionate attachment is when the contingent circumstances of birth are transformed into an object of love, meaning we as infants are entering this world entirely dependent on the care of others. Because we are so dependent, this creates a lot of psychic tension. However, and this sounds kind of like a cost-benefit analysis, we are much better off when we attach to these caregivers that we are so dependent on with a kind of loving, passionate form of bond rather than the alternative. The alternative is, of course, aggression and hatred for the fact that we are so dependent on them. So in this kind of psychic math that we're doing, uh, we attach to what we are so terribly dependent on. It is similarly, we are born into a nation, or some people, of course, are born in one nation and then end up moving to another, but we are tendentially born into a specific national body. And psychically, whether we want to admit to it or not, we are much better off bonding in a sort of positive uh, form to, to this national body. So that's what I mean by passionate attachment. It's not actually passionate as in, I laid eyes upon you and... Uh, we fell in love passionately, it's rather we are, we are dependent and therefore we attach passionately because this is a better outcome psychically. Even, even if we would like to uh, entertain utopian ideas of nationality and the nation, and of mm -hmm. course people through attachment do get psychic benefits for 
being part of something uh, libidinally, passionately. But it's mm -hmm. almost impossible nowadays to talk about the idea of nationality without mentioning the massive rise of nationalism. Of course, this has uh, been proposed as sort of an outcome of globalization or a form of resisting the powers of capital and the globalization of, you know, entire national psyches. So what do you make of this rise in nationalism, for example, in Europe and its attached uh, deep right-wing connections? My sense is that maybe when we, and I mean academics or those who consider them themselves liberal or cosmopolitan, to use a maybe slightly old-fashioned word now, maybe we were somewhat kidding ourselves, thinking that we were living in a, in a post-national world. And of course that was being conveyed to us on all fronts with the amount of mobility and transnational exchange that was happening at all times. But at the same time, this kind of banal nationalism that ne never fully ceased to exist, so symbolic markers of, of the nation, were present throughout. And I, my sense is that national attachments or identifications with the nations were always there and continued to exist. It's just that they had maybe entered a more latent period, but as soon as there was a sense of, oh, we're facing a, a kind of crisis, they were there to be reactivated. We're seeing perhaps is a, is a reactivation of these kind of identifications. It's not that they had to be recreated. They were always there. And maybe they would come to the fore in things like sporting competitions. There was no need to really think about this because it didn't seem to spell violence in, in, in terms of sort of harm. But they were always there to be reactivated. And now when, when it's implied to us that we are dealing with limited resources, there are threats coming from other nations or, or migrants, I, I sense that there's been this kind of reactivation happening. There's also this tension, or a lot of these issues seem to come down to who can be understood to be a rightful recipient of the benefits of the nation i.e. social welfare, healthcare, etc. So the nation often gets configured as um, you know, troubled or, or having limited resources, uh, but might nonetheless face unlimited claims. It, it, that idea of the state that's always on the verge of being overwhelmed seems to loom large on a right-wing fantasy. Would you agree? Yes, I, I would agree that there's a the nation is... The nation will care, you know, this kind of motherland fantasy. So the nation can be a caring body. It can sort of hold us. It can meet our needs. However, it can only do that if we deal with these threats. And what I've seen recently is around COVID-19, but we can go back to populism or really the last five or 10 years, is the element of conspiracy theory. So it's no longer merely the kind of generalized racist fantasy of, oh, sometimes racist, sometimes classist, sometimes a combination. Oh, it's these foreigners, it's these migrants, it's these people who don't want to work, it's these people who just want to drain, of, drain us of our resources. No, now often there's a kind of insidious secret agent or agencies that are actively trying to puncture holes into the fabric of the nation. Uh, so that's something that 
that I've seen more of, so the kind of conspiracy theory element of these fantasies. Paranoia then seems to be a very relevant term, would you say? Interestingly enough, when again, when going back to my own work, when I was looking at identifications or identification with a national body, it's not something that I looked at at all. So I was looking a lot at melancholia, nostalgia, or really the, the, the kind of fantasy element of that. But when I was looking at fantasies, I was looking at fantasies that help us sustain our, again, this word attachment to the nation. So fantasies of loving space, or here's this national myth, or there was this golden age uh, of when the nation was had peaked, for example, here it would be 1945. I, I think I underestimated or failed to observe because I, I did a lot of this research not around um, moments of crisis, the paranoic element that does persist in attachments. We could have already achieved happiness or plenitude or full enjoyment if it wasn't for um, millionaire X who collaborates with scientist Y and uh, national subjects from that other nation to deprive us of it. So the kind of paranoia, and of course, the interesting thing about paranoia to me is that it's no longer just us as a nation, but it's also me as, an, as a citizen or subject of that nation. So it turns out that all these you know, foreigners, they are making us weaker as a, as a nation would be one of those uh, sort of racist fantasies. But now it's actually these scientists, millionaires, politicians, we, people working behind the scenes are doing this to deprive me individually. There's an obvious and uh, deep tension between the globalizing flows of uh, capital and then, on the other hand, this nationalistic, passionate feeling of belonging into some sort of framework. So, of course, now we have a virus that really doesn't obey any national borders or even, in a sense, national ideologies. So it's sort of interesting to see how all these nations or national beliefs that were sort of like you said were a little bit put on hold and now you see nations uh, or the let's say Europe or even states within United States they have almost like relapsed into these small fiefdoms fighting over resources like uh, masks or whatever so there is this moment of simultaneous global tendency that the virus shows us that in a sense we are in this together far more broadly than just within our nation. But at the same time, there is this necessity for nations to try to now insulate themselves. So what would you make of this tension and its future tendencies? Funnily enough, when you were saying that, I was actually thinking about, again, transnational entities like um, corporations suddenly releasing all these ads saying, we're, we're all in this together. Uh, we care about each other. But that doesn't uh, quite answer the question. What I what I find interesting is the is questions around opening of borders, so that one immediate reaction for a lot of nation states now has been, in fact, pretty much all of them who are facing the COVID nineteen crisis is to close borders, when it's proven that that's not really been, at least according to the scientific scientific evidence that I've encountered, closing borders doesn't really stop the virus, as you've alluded to, too. It doesn't even help in reducing the number of new in, in infections. Again, it's almost a sort of visceral national reaction is to, well, we've got to, you know, 
batten down the hatches and uh, make sure that no one crosses that imaginary moat into our fortress. So I fear that we're going to see an increased sort of, we have only so much left, therefore we really only can care for these subjects, especially now that uh, the economic crisis factor is, in, is entering the picture. Uh, and one thing that obviously has been criticized quite strongly is, for example, initially when Spain and Italy were seeing these high numbers of, of deaths and infections. And it took, even within Europe, nations, and that includes Germany, which was far below capacity, um, a very long time to then offer a pitifully small amount of assistance in, ter assistance in terms of equipment, in terms of specialists, and then when Russia responded by sending out lots of doctors and uh, lots of equipment, that was seen as a gesture of, again, oh, Russia is putting down a flag in Italy. So rather than saying, oh, here we've, we've um, overcome these kind of historical or national divide, no, when, when, the, when a sort of foreign subject then offers assistance, it's seen as, oh, well, that's just colonization, isn't it? One of the very interesting phenomena that we've seen, the, the kind of breakdown of goodwill between nations in Europe. So, for example, the narrative that after the Second World War, the European nations kind of fell into each other's arms, sobbing, promising, never again. <laughs> but after the financial crash, we, we very quickly reverted to national stereotype and condemnation, as though the real problem why there was a crash had to do with the lazy character of the Greek people and the thoughtlessness of the Irish and the stupidity of the Italians and so on. Um, you know, a really kind of reactionary, uh, stereotype-informed approach seemed to return. Do you agree with that? And, and is it true that, that that kind of transnational ideal kind of disintegrated very quickly? And have we ever, if so, have we managed to get back to that idea of transnationalism or has there been some kind of permanent breach in the idea of a European identity? I should, or maybe I shouldn't try and uh, avoid personalizing this because I feel, of course, that I've wholeheartedly subscribed to this European integration ideal and then felt betrayed by the during the financial crisis and the credit crisis by my Germany's response. I remember reading Yanis Navrakakis' research on has the European project been effective in terms of people identifying with narratives of Europeanness, or he would say, I guess, fantasies of Europeanness. And his conclusion was that, no, it hasn't been effective. The idea of Europe is too amorphous and doesn't evoke the same kind of passionate attachment that I've sort of been talking about and repeating myself over. Hence, a fallback to more nationalistic ideas and fantasies is, is, is inevitable, just because they have a sort of grip or a hold on our psyche in a way that Europe doesn't. But when I hear this, I feel like, but I am one of those fools who, <laughs> who did subscribe to ideal, ideas of Europeanness. I am one of those transnational uh, subjects that uh, then felt betrayed more by government's responses 
so that clearly they hadn't subscribed to it in the way that uh, that I do. But maybe that speaks more to my own sort of elitism than to what is actually happening. I'd like to ask you a question about memory and all of this, knowing that this is a, a large area of interest in your own research. Again, to come back to that period of the post-credit crunch, um, I'm from Ireland, and this national memory seemed to take hold, that the reason why the Celtic Tiger economy collapsed was because everybody participated in this feverish outbreak of crazed consumerism. Uh, everybody was participating in this property market and buying houses for millions of euros. Uh, and it completely swept over any notion of inequality. In fact, that era was a period of, of widening inequality, which happened quite quickly, and this proliferation of very rich people, um, while the, the gains made at, at, for most households were quite modest. So, it, but, but nonetheless, that narrative seems to have really taken hold. A lot of people did seem to remember buying concert tickets on Ticketmaster for 120 euros and thinking, yes, yes, I did indeed participate in the madness. It's only right and proper now that we have to pay with all this austerity. So that, that idea that, that a retrospective memory can be created and then everybody seems to find a, a, an attachment or, or, or remember themselves in it, that, that to me is just a very, very strange, deeply ideological phenomenon. I mean, I, I think that's... That's one thing, again, that I hadn't anticipated when I started looking at nations is that I always assumed that nations have very concrete ideas associated with them or that there's a, there's a, a sort of rather distinct content to national identity, national fantasy, national myth. And while, of course, when primed initially to talk about Germany or Finland or Ireland or England, we might come up with distinct national figures, stories, but then it turns out that transnationally, they're all kind of the same and that they're all open to emphasis of certain elements or revision or interpretation in line with what the national sort of need seems to be. And I wonder if, um, I mean, that's true of, of sort of memories as well. I don't want to go too deeply into the Freudian concept of Nachträglichkeit, although it, I can show off my German, um, which is a kind of Nachträglichkeit as a way of revising early memories in line with later memories. So it might be that I remember a specific incident in my childhood or in my youth in one way. However, then something occurs in the now, it could be a political event, it could be a personal event, which then means I end up revising this, this earlier memory in order to make sense of what is happening now. So this is the, and, and this is something that can keep happening. So we keep sort of approximating what we think was the actual meaning of these events, which may not even have seemed very, you know, a conversation or a look a sound that may not have been that important. So I wonder if that is that is happening. So what what felt like an everyday occurrence? Oh, there's a there's a concert. Well, that's a, something I've this. I always wanted to see this band perform. Yes, it's a bit expensive, but hey, I mean these are the prices these days. You buy it, and then in retrospect, you feel like well, seen in the context of what is happening now. 
So to me, it reads like a moment of Nachträglichkeit, which given another 10 years and another national crisis or international challenge might be revised to mean something else completely different again. So um, from the perspective of consumer culture, marketing discourses, of course, enforce and create and commodify stereotypes. We can imagine, of course, you know, authenticity and good food coming from countries around the Mediterranean or then, for example, efficiency and good engineering from Germany. So marketing such as, you know, country of origin effects or even place branding, they create and play with these stereotypes that are, of course, very homogenizing and create very particular ideas about the people who live in a place. Why do you think these kind of stereotypes are so sellable? And do you have any view on the general homogenizing tendencies of marketization as they create and construct commodities out of national stereotypes? So, for example, are we selling Italy to Germany or are we selling Germany to Germany? But of course, both of those. I'm just thinking about German consumer ads through the ages as I was uh, growing up. I recall initially there, w- there was sort of a, a tendency towards denationalization because Germany tends to sort of subdue this, this idea of national celebration still in the aftermath. I mean, for, we're still to this day in a way in the aftermath of uh, World War II and the Holocaust. So there would be an appeal to universal features like the family, multi generations mixing, or things like being young and dynamic and healthy. Of course, looking at them now in retrospect, there was still a a, a sort of national element to them. Uh, Then when Germany became, you could sort of be vicariously proud of being German because it was suddenly considered cool. Germany then sold Germanness back to its own consumers, but in a in a sort of ironic fashion. So the, I remember the Volkswagen ads, for example, or other ads where people would sort of be making fun of 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 those very stereotypes of Germanness, but the positive stereotype. So yes, we Germans are boring and efficient, but that's also kind of amusing, and actually we're secretly uh, very proud of it. And at this point, we've I think in in, in German sort of consumer ads, I feel we've almost reached a point where without this sort of vicarious enjoying Germany through the eyes of other nations, we can almost go back to just enjoying being German, which is a moment that I'm slightly worried about. I guess there's always been a kind of desire for stereotypes, as terrible as that sounds, and for national stereotypes and for celebrating them I mean, one doesn't need to get very psychological. I guess there is pleasure in simplicity uh, and there's pleasure in being able to pinpoint at a map and say, well, of course, Italians, you know, La Dolce Vita, um, that's what they're like. And that's, but that's very benign, isn't it? Because there's no hostility there. They just seek to enjoy Germans, you know, yes, yes, efficient and um, good quality, punctuality. But that's very benign, isn't it? So we don't need to be worried about it. So I feel there's a kind of simplification and a kind of taking away the, a charge of hostility and making it seem as if 
the world is knowable and can be defined and then consumed, of course. And I'd like to ask you, Maria, about those nations or confederations that did exist but no longer exist. So um, mm-hmm. East Germany or Yugoslavia or, of course, the Soviet Union. Uh, it, it, it seems like a very odd idea that a nation might suddenly cease to exist. Uh, do you have any comments to make on, on how we experience that at the psychosocial level? Well, I'm glad you ask. <laughs> I think that's what motivated my research in the GDR was very much that sense of, as I got older, thinking, hmm, that's not common a phenomenon, especially in, in the global north or in, of course, in, in, the, in the sort of post-colonial world, that's very much a phenomenon, but less so in, in the old Europe, that a nation can just cease to exist overnight with no true shift of territory or no mass migration of peoples as it happened in the GDR. I noticed, of course, that my parents' generation had to make numerous adjustments and then economically and in terms of career trajectories, personal trajectories, all of this has had multiple effects, but it's the sort of psychic element to it that fascinated me most. I then started looking at, and now I'm just speaking about uh, East Germany, which in a way is maybe easier to, to grasp because it was a smaller country and it was subsumed by the Federal Republic of Germany. So there was a sort of distinct trajectory for the nation and, and what happened to the map. I st- then started looking at what East Germans were so frequently accused of, which was excessive nostalgia, or the word that was used was nostalgie, so nostalgia for the East. And that was framed as a pathological tendency, because how can you look back with fondness at a country that in a... In, especially in, in many Western definitions, is seen as a sort of quasi-totalitarian regime with huge repressions, um, dissidents leaving, people trying to escape, and that banned free movement of its people. And so the, the sort of hegemonic reading was, well, only people that weren't raised in a democracy like we were would then look back fondly upon a country that wasn't democratic. Therefore, as a nation, we must we must rally together and educate these people in, in democratic citizenship and not give them too much of a space to look back fondly. When at the same time, nostalgia as a sort of everyday thing is, is considered actually a fairly healthy way of coping with the constant changes that are happening to an indiv- in an individual's lives from aging and relationships beginning, ending, moving, and so on. So I thought that was an interesting thing. Nostalgia on an individual level is a good thing, but as soon as it's seen for a nation to engage in, in nostalgia, that becomes pathological. And in my reading, that was very much, as you said, about countries disappearing off the map. It was actually a response to these kind of memories, and, and they were sort of sealed off into this vacuum and then asked to be cast aside, which is, of course, not how we operate. So for a lot of people, the, the supposed pathological nostalgia element was just an attempt to to acknowledge publicly that this did exist and that these memories have an equal value and these biographies have an equal right to be discussed and talked about as those of people who 
live in countries that still technically exist. Now, for you consumer researchers, the interesting element is probably when then this was exploited, this kind of East German resistance to, to being considered pathological. And suddenly shops started appearing, nostalgia shops, nostalgia TV shows, nostalgia films. So then when the commercial kind of element was added to this, and then you could consume a little piece of the GDR by buying objects that were created say in the 2000s or in the late 90s, but that harked back to socialism. How do you see the future of the idea of a nation or nationality or nationalism projecting from the current situation? Crystal ball thinking, huh? In the middle of this, of this crisis, I find something that, going back to pathology, something almost pathological is that there has been in recent years, and this predates COVID-19, a kind of paucity or lack of future scenarios. So it's almost like that muscle, people used to be much better at exercising that psychic kind of muscle that allowed us to envision futures and to envision future scenarios of, let's not even call it progress, but of some forms of coming together, solidarity, of something that to give us optimism, they've, they've weakened entirely. So I think um, we're so used to now either not thinking about the future at all and just focus on the moment, focus on what you can do now, or thinking in terms of cataclysms that I almost feel explaining my own shortcoming. I want to take this time to, to fortify that muscle again and think transnationally and think in terms of coming together in solidarity across those borders which don't really serve to hold back anything anyway. Currently, on a sort of gut feeling level, I, I don't see a post-national future emerging out of this. Although you could say, you know, people that are more interested in the natural sciences, of course, and how, for example, vaccines are created. And this goes to this conversation as well, which consists of three people born in very different places in the world. We've always engaged in, in, in very transnational endeavors. And so that the whoever looks at the vaccine, but also looks at other responses to this kind of crisis on a, on a pragmatic level, this will always be a transnational response. But at the same time, I'm afraid this will be accompanied by a worsening of nationalistic tendencies, especially as, as you've, you've already alluded to, that there will be the sense of economic scarcity of we are running out of things, of money, and therefore let's not extend a helping hand if we can avoid it. Thank you, Maria. Uh, this is very interesting. And uh, I learned a lot about uh, nationality and nationalism and the whole idea of a nation here. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Maria. That was wonderful. Really interesting stuff. Thank you.